0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network.
1: You're listening to episode 338 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Rachel Green is a web developer based in Houston, Texas with experience in building B2B e-commerce and enterprise applications. Her skill set includes experience with programming languages, systems, and tooling such as Ruby, Erlang, JavaScript, and AWS. She is also a regular contributor to open source projects and co-organizer for tech-related meetups. Outside of tech, Rachel is also involved with civic engagement and advocacy efforts and is passionate about the potential for tech to do good for others. When it's time to relax, Rachel can be found curled up with a good book while baking bread. It's great to have you on the show, Rachel. Thank
0: you. It's great to be here. Uh, I've been a longtime fan of the show, so it's definitely an honor to be able to chat with you.
1: That means the world to me. So Rachel, what is your developer origin story? Yeah,
0: so I would say that there's probably two parts to it. So my first exposure with web development in general actually came when I was in high school. I uh, decided to procrastinate when it came to taking that required computer class that they have you take to graduate. And my senior year, the only computer class that really fit my schedule was webmastering, which this is in 2009, so webmastering wasn't really a thing at that point probably, but that's what they called the class. (laughs) And so with that class, I actually learned um, HTML, a little bit of CSS, uh, we still learned some of the older Adobe products like uh, Fireworks and Dreamweaver and Flash, and it was really interesting. I even got to in the class by making like a a portfolio site for a friend of mine that was an artist and liked to do drawings for people. So I thought it was really interesting. But then I went to school and uh, kind of tucked that away. I decided to study electrical engineering. And so with that, I started programming, uh, actually with MATLAB. That was the first like real programming class I took, quote unquote, was my, my freshman year, was learning how to use MATLAB. But then I got used to using Python uh, as another elective that I got to take as part of my degree. And then that summer before my senior year, I worked for a professor actually working on a website that he had come up with. And that website was written in Ruby on Rails. And at that point, I knew I really enjoyed programming, um, really thought it was cool, kind of some of the different ideas that you could come up with. And I think that's when I Really, kind of fell in love with some of the different ideas that you could bring to life with web development. You know, after I graduated, I did uh, a couple. Of, I did another type of uh, career for a couple of years, but even then, I found my way back to development. So I really kind of see it as happening in two
1: parts. I love that. I think it's fantastic that you can see it in two parts and I definitely now want to see the syllabus for web mastering because there's so many nostalgic tools that you brought up there so what an amazing opportunity to take that and I love that you you know found that opportunity with your professor and that brought you into the Ruby on Rails community. So speaking of you did get some experience with that professor's project but what is your current experience with Ruby on Rails?
0: Yes so uh, I started with that professor that was 2012 that summer Um, I actually would come back to Ruby in my spare time uh, every so often uh, kind of keeping up with things just as I heard about them and when I took my first developer job uh, a couple years after graduating we used Erlang and it wasn't until I went to a different role working at a, a local startup here in Houston that I was able to get back to Rails. Uh, so I, at that point I was learning more about Rails, trying to mesh it with some of the different things I'd learned at my previous job, while also trying to catch up in the ecosystem. Cause I think at that point it was, uh, we were anxiously awaiting Rails 6 maybe, if I'm remembering the date right. And then after I left that startup, I started working at Chai One, where I was hired as a Ruby engineer So I worked there, was able to join one of their uh, projects for a client and kind of kept up with it mostly until the end of that project when uh, I switched to a different one for that same client.
1: That's great. So can you tell us about Chai One and your role there? Yes, so Chai One is a bit of a
0: hybrid company. So on the one hand, we do consulting services for different enterprises usually within the energy industry oil and gl- gas nuclear industry as well as clients so like i mentioned on the one hand we do this consulting aspect where we go in um, our researchers do a fantastic job of working with clients getting to know what their needs are so that we can then deliver a product that helps them fulfill whatever business need that they're looking for. Um, And then on the other hand, we've also started our own product called Velostix.
1: Interesting. So basically you were able to get all this knowledge from all the clients that you've been working with and really found a niche where you could produce your own product. Now is there a typical stack that you always use when you're dealing with these consulting clients?
0: Especially since we're in Houston where oil and gas is king, so some clients Follow up with that where a lot of oil and gas is the Microsoft stack, if you will. So uh, it's C Sharp, it's .NET. My understanding is that um, Microsoft has really embraced Angular, and then of course you're using like Azure on the back end, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, some of the other clients, you know, they're looking at a full stack JavaScript. So um, you know, Node Express React. Uh, as well as anything else you might be using. Um, You know, I've worked on projects that have used Ruby on Rails, React, where we've done iOS development, um, which is another big thing for our clients, is that we produce a lot of in-house native apps, particularly on the iOS side, as well as on the Android side. So it's kind of just a a mishmash, but interesting
1: really impressive and you've probably become quite the expert in learning new technologies. So do you have any advice on how you can be more self-directed learning as a developer?
0: Yes. It's really interesting because there's a lot of noise when you look at web development, right? In terms of what you should learn. Uh, Every time you turn around, there's some new article or video tutorial or web series or what have you about an aspect of web development that you may have never thought of. From database indexes to, you know, loading your images and a performant matter to whatever. So I think one key thing that helps me is I have a learn someday list, right? Um, So that's a list of things that I, I would like to learn someday. But I also have to tell myself like, well, that's not what you're learning right now. So let's just kind of keep this to the side so we get distracted. Uh, Another thing that actually helps me is a list of things not to learn, because like I said, there's so many different things and you can kind of get caught up in like the, the shiny object syndrome, I think they say sometimes where everything looks interesting to the point where you don't know what to start with, but sometimes kind of having those boundaries and saying, okay, well, you know, I, I don't really like to look at DevOps, you know, I'll learn what I need to learn for certain things, but that's not necessarily something I want to focus on. That really kind of helps cut down on some of that impulse as well. And then finally, just coming up with your own kind of syllabus in a sense. Uh, I don't know that a lot of us have really had an opportunity to kind of like plan what we would want to learn in a rigorous manner outside of just asking people. But I found that kind of approaching it like you would if you were going to teach a class can really help. I remember reading this great article on Vice about doing self-directed learning, and it was basically along those lines. Like, think about what you would ideally want to get out of this class if you were going to take it on this topic. You know, maybe you can only say, well, I want to learn these three things, and you don't realize that there's more to it yet. That's fine. But just say, hey, you know, if I were to take a class, I would want to learn these three things, and I'll know that they're, you know, I've learned them, quote unquote, whenever I have been able to do A, B, or C, and then just kind of chart a plan to get there. You'll want to have some flexibility, uh, because you don't know what you don't know, right? You might start out saying, oh, I want to learn about improving the performance of our database queries and end up in a strange land, so to speak, because that is such a wide field, right? So you want to have some flexibility to kind of be able to start down one path and then walk it back if you realize you're getting too into the weeds of something and risking not, you know, risking focusing too narrowly, but being able to kind of chart an uh, ideal course and to get started is really key. Um, and I'd say another thing that's key is having uh, some type of mentor that you can go to. It doesn't necessarily have to be a formal mentor like at your company, but just some person or some group of people that you could trust that you could say, hey, I'm looking to learn more about this topic, you know, what?" This is what I do know. What are some things that you think I should look into as well? It could be like a formal mentor at your company. It could be, you know, you just posting on Reddit or Stack Overflow or what have you. But uh, whatever it is, you know, being able to find that community where you can ask that question and taking that input is really useful as well.
1: Yeah. So that just altered the next question that I was going to ask you. And I think you brought up a really good topic. And the idea is having a mentor, no matter what stage of your career that you're in. I think that we direct a lot of junior developers to go out and seek that mentor. But as we move through our development careers from junior to intermediate to senior, do you believe that any stage of your career, you should still be seeking out a mentor?
0: I think you should. Um, I think that It's definitely good to have someone who can be a sounding board in a sense. And I think that as you progress through your career, that the, I I guess I would say the idea of a mentor changes a bit. So maybe when you're fresh out of college and you're really not sure how to approach things, right? Or you just graduated from high school. It's your first job. You're like, look, everybody in my office is old enough to be like my parents. Like, I don't know how I'm supposed to talk to these people. Then your mentor takes on like a very specific role, right? In terms of trying to help you get acclimated to the norms of a full-time job or working in a particular industry or working at a particular type of office but as you progress in your career, right? It's it's a little bit different. It looks differently. Now, it's less about well, how do I get acclimated to working full time and maybe now it's more about I'm having to make these kind of hard people decisions because I'm supervising a team or I'm having to make, you know, more trade-offs in terms of my work-life balance because I've You know started a family or i'm taking care of an elderly parent or i'm doing whatever and how do i reconcile that with the reputation i have as somebody who's you know uh going to stay to get it done as long as it takes right so i think having that sounding board at any stage is really important Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be someone in your company I know I'm a bit of an odd duck in that the person I would consider to be one of my mentors doesn't even work in tech, (laughs) you know, but I know that I can go to that person and I'll be like, well, I'm I'm coming up against this, you know, what would you advise and she'll provide me with good sound advice.
1: You are so lucky to have that and it's so great when that mentor knows you like over a legacy amount of time and knows how you would emotionally and theoretically react to something. So it almost really helps that your mentor is not in tech because I think we can all get wrapped up in a lot of the tech world. And so being able to have a mentor that's outside of it, I think would be really valuable. So that's quite smart. So the reason that we cross paths is because I noticed what an amazing job you do as an admin for the Ruby on Rails link Slack organization. So I'd love to hear the story of how you got involved.
0: Yeah, so a few years back, I joined the Slack and I, um, well, I've always been a, a talker, so I joined the Slack and I immediately start talking to people about whatever the topic is. <laughs> and uh, i like to be able to help people when they're uh, coming up against issues, when they're programming. i uh, like to be able to answer questions. I... Have kind of taught people informally um, before, and I, it's something I really enjoy. So I, I also enjoy doing it over Slack, it seems, and so that I think is what kind of made the previous administration team decide to approach me because they were like, you know, we see you, you're always helping out, trying to, you know, make sure that people are not just civil but kind um, trying to make this a pleasant place and we think that you would be a great addition to the team and they invited me and i was like oh this sounds great so let me go ahead and say yes
1: that is a fantastic honor so are there any lessons you have learned from being an admin on such an active group it's
0: interesting so for one thing, you know teamwork really does make the dream work, uh, because it is such a large slack. Uh, you're not going to catch everything, so being able to have other people and know that you know if you can't necessarily deal with something at the moment, somebody else can step in and help is really useful. Um, also, good for getting that kind of consensus again with the sounding board, right? When you look at something, you're like. Eh. You know, is this something we should maybe keep an eye on or, you know, have, you know, maybe this makes me feel nervous but I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, being able to talk it out with other people is really helpful. Um, I would say, you know, like I said, teamwork is a really big thing. Also, uh, you know, being able to observe the community just, I know people talk a lot about how Ruby and Rails, I guess, maybe seems friendlier compared to maybe some other developer communities. And the Slack just really reinforces that, in my opinion. It's not to say that there haven't been, you know, kind of like little tiffs and things like that. But for the most part, everyone is there to help each other and to grow together. And it's a great thing to see.
1: That's a wonderful view on the community. And we want to thank you for all the work that you do in that group, because it really is a fantastic group that we will, of course, link in the show notes. So please tell me about your work with ebwiki.org.
0: Yeah. So that is an open source project that I've been working on for about four or five years. Um, As you can guess, the pandemic really makes everything feel like a blur time-wise. But um, it's something I got started with probably 2015, 2016, where in another Slack, a contributor for the site reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I've seen you in the Slack talking, of course. (laughs) Um, And you've mentioned that, you know, you do Ruby on Rails, you have experience with that. I work on this open source project where we, are chronicling cases where people of color are killed by police in the united states and we want to know not just when and what occurred but what happened afterward you know you know does is there an investigation um you know is this heard before a grand jury you know or do we see any policy changes you know what what kind of happens in the aftermath i've always been fairly passionate, or a lot of cases really passionate about understanding the ways that we can use tech to do good in the world. And so when he said that, I was like, you know, um, let me hop on and see what I can do. And then, you know, five years later, here I am, I'm still one of the main contributors for the project. It has grown a little bit. It's a project that we do have some consistency in terms of volunteers, but it's also a hard project because we are talking about deaths, many of which strike you as preventable, and that's a a hard thing to do. And unfortunately, it's something that, you know, as we've seen even this summer is just still so necessary in a lot of, in a lot of areas. So I've, been working on that, continue to work on that. If anyone's interested in in helping in any way, uh, please feel free to reach out, let me know.
1: We will absolutely link that up as well. If you have one idea to convey to the listeners about social good and software development, what would it be?
0: So I would think that one thing to consider is that every little decision kind of counts. Um, It can be easy I think sometimes because this is a profession in which we are very blessed, right? Uh, most of us make uh, a wage that is pretty high. I know that my mother, my mother was a public school teacher, never made anything close to what I make now, right? Um, you know, I've been able to work from home. You know, I have this job, you know, some of us have like unlimited, you know, PTO. We have all these different perks. And sometimes it can be really easy to get caught up in the day-to-day of what we're doing and forget how what we do can have such a long reaching effect. And so I would say, you know, I'm not saying you need to go out there and start 15 different open source projects tomorrow that are dedicated to getting rid of, you know, hunger or whatever. I mean, if you want to do that that's fine, but just think about the little decisions that you make throughout your day and how that can be used to do some good in the world. Whether it's the projects that you work on at work, whether it's any side projects you might do, whether it's, you know, in terms of if you want to donate to a cause or even just being willing to smile at the person opening the door for you as you walk into the store. Just consider how the little things you do can add up to do some real good. And I think we'd be pleasantly surprised inside the code and out of it.
1: As someone who is so involved in the Ruby on Rails Slack group and for how long you've been involved with Ruby on Rails, what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby on Rails community?
0: So I am personally excited for Ruby 3.0. I also like geek out over a lot of stuff. So I'm like kind of watching the different discussions they have about, you know, adding this feature and taking away that feature and changing this thing. So I'm uh, excited to see where that takes us. I am kind of watching to see as the JavaScript, community, maybe not the JavaScript community, but when you look at um, the preponderance of like SPAs, I'm interested to see, you know, as that continues to mature, how, how people reckon with that. You know, do we start to see people kind of drift back and be like, uh, maybe we don't necessarily need an SPA. Maybe we can do, you know, traditional server side rendering. Um, you know, I know we've seen some great things uh, coming out of rails in terms of being able to use like stimulus and now webpack to be able to have um, you know maybe more quote unquote modern options on the front end for rails. So I think that's pretty interesting, especially when you combine it with, What I think is probably going to be a push towards more progressive web apps. So that's like another thing that I'm interested to see as it grows. You know, we still have the traditional app stores, but it seems like, you know, slowly, surely, but slowly, the support for progressive web apps in both ecosystems, both Apple and Android and really anybody else, that you are seeing more features available there. And so I'm interested to see, you know, what happens when that gets to parity with, you know, a native iOS or Android app. Are we still reaching for, um, you know, like a Rails API to back up an iOS app? Or are we then looking at, let's make a progressive web app using Rails and React and just stick it out there and, you know, the web into the browser and have you add the icon from there.
1: It was so great to have you on the show, Rachel. How can listeners follow you?
0: Yes. So I am on Twitter. My handle is at rlgreen91. I tweet every so often. Uh, I tweet more than anything else. I am on I don't know if people still pass out linkedin profiles but
1: (laughs) oh they sure do (laughs) if
0: you if you would like to i am on linkedin as rachel green um if you look for uh rachel green working at chai one then that'll be that'll be me compared to the other rachel greens out there so i would say that every so often i i might write a blog post for something but i usually link that on twitter when i do so i'd say that's a one-stop shop
1: Wonderful. Well, we are so glad to have you on the community. Thank you so much for being a long-time listener, and it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and Open Source Software. While you're at it, please leave us a review, and thank you for listening.